A few of you shared with me before this service that this Sunday World Communion is one of your favorite Sundays, and certainly it is for me as well. We have been going through the book of 1 Samuel as a church, and so I thought we'd take the text for today's uh, sermon from 1 Samuel, as it also seems fitting for World Communion Sunday too. As we prepare for this reading of God's Word, let's pray. O loving God, we ask that in your light we would see light, that you would illumine our minds and hearts, that the words we hear now read from Scripture, the words we hear proclaimed might be for us your words. Speak to us, we pray. We need your word for guidance, for inspiration, for hope, to remember who we are and what we are about. Speak to us, we pray, for your servants are listening. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Scripture text this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 through 21. 1 Samuel 8, 4 through 21. Listen for God's word to us. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow in your ways. Appoint for us then a king to govern us like other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to govern us. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Just as they've done to me from the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are doing to you. Now then, listen to their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel reported all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters, and to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his courtiers. He will take one-tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his courtiers." He will take your male and female slaves and the best of your cattle and donkeys and put them to his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourself, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but we are determined to have a king over us so that we may be like other nations." and that our king may govern us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, today we celebrate the fact that as Christians, we are bound to one another, not just as a local congregation, not just with those of you who are joining us on the live stream or those of you who are sitting in this sanctuary. Today, we recall and savor that we are linked together with believers around the world, one enormous body spread across the earth, united under one head in Jesus Christ. 
And so images of World Communion Sunday will often depict both the earth on the one hand and the bread and the cup on the other, reminding us that as we eat this bread and cup, we are bound together in Christian community with those who are receiving communion all over the world. Now, sometimes the earth will be depicted above the chalice as it is in the top left image. Sometimes it'll be depicted in front of the earth, or sometimes the earth will be depicted on the cup as it is in the bottom image. But in every one of those instances, you've got earth and cup and bread, world communion. Sometimes the elements of communion are shown surrounding the earth as they are here, and the elements are depicted in their original state from creation, grain, and grapes. Sometimes images for world communion will depict the earth as a table, like the one that Jesus and his disciples gathered around for the Last Supper, and often the diversity of those who dwell on the earth and make up the church, make up that table is emphasized. In this image, we see those seated around the table are of different ages and clothing styles and colors, and you'll even notice there's a cat. I think that's pointing to the reconciliation of all things in Christ, or maybe a nod to Carissa and others of our cat lovers in the congregation. Symbols are powerful. Symbols are powerful. We remember this on World Communion Sunday especially. Flags, banners, images, we care about them because they speak to our identity. Symbols can speak in a kind of shorthand saying, this is who you are. You're not alone, but instead linked to these other people. And the link is this image, this symbol. It ties you together as one. Well, I remembered driving to church on World Communion Sunday back in October of 2001. You can hold off on that image until a little bit later, but thanks anyway. I remembered driving to church on World Communion Sunday back in October of 2001. The bombings of the World Trade Center had just taken place a few weeks earlier. And as I drove to the church I was serving in Connecticut, you can guess what I saw on everyone's lawn and on everyone's doorposts, right? You remember October of 2001. Of course, I saw American flags. And why were those put out? It was a symbol, I like to think, at that time of solidarity, to say that those who had lost loved ones in the attacks on the World Trade Center, they were not alone. Instead, they were linked to other people, that it wasn't just their loss, that a a nation was with them as they mourned the loss represented in those two towers coming down and the other attacks that took place on September 11th. It was an effort to say we're in this together. But I remember on that World Communion Sunday, as I drove into church and as we worshiped God together, as we're doing today, that first Sunday in October 2001, that the earth and communion along with it was a fitting symbol for that time and place as well. For, if you remember, in early October of 2001, there was solidarity expressed around the world towards those who had lost loved ones in September 11th. And I thought even more, perhaps in this moment, with that image of the earth and communion, there might even be a sense of solidarity with all those who suffered around the world from terrorism, violence, 
from war, who had to fear mines, whether they were bombs sent with planes converted into them or whether they were dropped from the sky. It seemed like a powerful moment of solidarity for the suffering of the world and a chance to pray and mourn together and say we can, with God's help, build a better world together, work for that blessed justice and peace we know in the kingdom of God especially when you suffered loss. You want a symbol that reminds you that you're not alone as you grieve, a flag, a symbol of the earth, something to highlight your connection with other people. You want to know others share your pain and are in communion with you as you grieve, as you lament. This, that World Communion Sunday, I remember savoring the fact that with believers all over the world together, We mourn the loss of life. We held with Jesus the promise of resurrection, and we held his call to be peacemakers in the world in that time and place. To this day, I find the symbols of World Communion Sunday resonate with me. In today's text from 1 Samuel, we see the people of ancient Israel facing this kind of decision. What would be their unifying symbol? What would be the image that would draw them together, that would show them they are connected to one another? What banner or flag would they lift up? And it's an important decision. We read about in chapter 8, symbols matter, particularly political or religious symbols, for they do remind us we are together. You mourn together. You celebrate together together. That's why we all wear team garb if we're going to a sports game, don't we? We want others, those who are playing and who we are rooting for, to know we're with them. If they win, we win with them. If they lose, we lose with them, to show we're together. At a recent session meeting, one of our elders recalled for us a great scene from the television show Ted Lasso, and if you haven't seen that show, I heartily recommend it. The scene occurs just after the English soccer team that Lasso coached had suffered a devastating loss. And in the locker room afterwards, Lasso tells the team, yes, this was a hard loss, and you all, we all, are sad right now. But then he says, I promise you, there's something worse out there than being sad, and that's being alone and being sad. Ain't no one in this room alone. Ain't no one in this room alone. That's good news, isn't it? Especially when we mourn. It's good to know that. So what flag? What symbol, what logo would the people of ancient Israel choose to show they were bound to others as a team and not alone so their losses and their gains, their defeats and their victories might be known together? Well, there were a few different options at the time, and one was to raise a tribal banner. They could have chosen a tribal symbol ever since the 12 sons of Israel introduced in the book of Genesis chapter 49. One way the people of ancient Israel would experience solidarity with others is by their tribe. In the book of Numbers, we read how the tribes of ancient Israel camped under their family banners, and some believe those banners were actually tribal banners. So if you were of the tribe of Judah, that is the banner you might see depicting a lion. For in Genesis 49, Judah is described as a lion's offspring. 
If you were of the tribe of Naphtali, your banner would have looked like this, since Genesis 49 describes Naphtali as a deer let loose. Tribal identity was prominent from late in Genesis all the way through 1 Samuel. You might recall then the very first character in the book of 1 Samuel is introduced, Elkanah. He's not introduced as a citizen of ancient Israel. He's introduced first by his family. He was a Zophite, and he's introduced by his tribe twice. Ephraim is mentioned twice. Well, scholars like Norman Gottwald and Walter Brueggemann argue that right up until the days we read about in today's passage, ancient Israel was not some tightly organized nation-state. Israel, we think, was a pretty broad term that described a variety of people who were each a part of larger families and tribes connected as a people by God. So the people of ancient Israel, when we come to chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, could have raised a tribal banner. There were other images the people of ancient Israel could have lifted up that went beyond their family or tribal affiliations. They might have lifted up images that reminded them of the God who had called and claimed them, the God who had delivered them and was with them still. They might have lifted up a banner that depicted stars in the night sky. That would hearken back to how God said to Abraham and Sarah to look at the stars in the sky and promise that their descendants would be as numerous as those stars around that time. You'll recall God had said to Abram, I will bless you and your descendants and through you all the families, all the peoples, all the nations of the earth will know blessing. They could have lifted up that great banner, and from that, remembered they were a people called and blessed by God to be a blessing to others. Another image they could have lifted up on a banner was, of course, the parting of the Red Sea. They could have lifted up that great image of how the God they worshipped was a liberating God, liberating those who were oppressed, freeing the slaves. They could have lifted up other images too, like the quail and the bread. They could have remembered how God, remembered with that how God is a providing God, giving bread and quail in the wilderness when God's people were hungry. They might have depicted stone tablets recalling how God gave them the precious gift of God's Word and a series of ordinances and statutes, especially in the Ten Commandments, a light for their path, a way to live, to live out that call to love God and love their neighbor. They might have lifted up the symbol of the Ark of the Covenant that contained the tablets on which the Ten Commandments were written. That Ark celebrated a God not just of the ancient Hebrew people, but a God who created the heavens and the earth, a God of all people. In chapter 5, you might recall of 1 Samuel, we read how the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant, and they brought it to the Philistine city of Ashdod, and when they did, they placed it next to the Philistine god Dagon, and the next morning, Dagon, or the statue of Dagon, was on the ground face down next to the Ark of the Covenant, showing there was one God, Lord of Lords, that this God Israel worshipped was not just their God, it was a God of all the earth. The Ark of the Covenant might just have pointed to that, and how God's call and claim on Israel was to be a light to all people. 
But we read that the people of ancient Israel did not choose any of those symbols I just mentioned. They chose another one instead. It wasn't the ark, not the Red Sea, not their various tribal banners. In today's passage, we read how the elders of ancient Israel approached Samuel and they asked him if he would please wave one particular banner high in the air. Samuel, by this time, had become a renowned prophet. He was described as a judge like back in the book of Judges when a particular leader would emerge like Deborah from among the people of ancient Israel and for a time people would be united through that figure. Samuel had planned to pass on this office of judge to his sons, but we read that his, judge, his sons were unscrupulous, that they took bribes, they were corrupt like the sons of Eli were. And so when the elders approach Samuel, they say, your sons are not fit to rule us, so instead we want another symbol of our unity together, of how we are bound together as one. Lift up the banner, they say, of a human king. Lift up a crown. That's the symbol we want to unite us. Other nations have a king. They say, why shouldn't we? Well, Samuel says there's actually a number of reasons why you shouldn't have a king. Have you heard of taxes? Get ready for them. Have you heard of military conscription? Get ready for it. Have you heard of some with a whole lot of power and not a lot of checks and balances amassing wealth and power for themselves and for their closest uh, members of the royal court and taking it from others? If not, you'll learn about it when you have a king. This king will enslave you, Samuel warns, using imagery of the Pharaoh in Egypt. He warns them that concentrating all this power and authority in one king, one human being's hands would lead them down a perilous path, but they insist, no, we want to raise that banner anyway. And it's portrayed in today's text as a rejection of God's rule over them. They could have lifted up the image of the ark or the Red Sea parting or manna or quail, but they chose instead to be like other nations and lift up a human crown. Well, yes, if you read on, you'll see, of course, that there were some kings who were more faithful to God. We have, of course, King David, but even he would abuse his authority and have to be called to account by Samuel. And other kings in Israel's history would carry out precisely the kinds of things the prophet Samuel warned about. God would not give up on this people. God's steadfast love would be with them even when they demanded this earthly king. God remained faithful and loving towards them. But this move to a monarchy, as we read about it in 1 Samuel 8, is presented in a decidedly negative fashion. It's a rejection of God's rule over them. Well, we know it as Christians that when we finally see the fullness of God's kingly rule come near to us incarnate, when we see it brought near to us in Christ, it doesn't centralize wealth and power in just one human being's hands. It doesn't come all together in one human crown of a single person who is not God as God would come to us. 
In Christ, we see instead powers distributed, not concentrated. In Jesus Christ, in his ministry, the blind see, the captive is freed, the outcast is welcomed in, the poor are lifted up, the sick are healed. Those who try to maintain power and privilege for themselves are challenged. God's kingdom, as Jesus proclaimed it, as he embodied it, was one where God's rule and not Herod's rule, nor Pilate's rule, nor Caesar's rule was what mattered. Jesus lifted up that banner time and again of God's rule, and it was one of love and salvation and healing to those who would receive it. And so today, the king we rally around this communion Sunday is not any human king or president or celebrity. The king we rally around is the ruler of heaven and earth who came near to us in Christ, fully God, fully human, and in Him we know unity. In Him we know the kingly rule of Christ in that suffering servant who gave His life for us. And so, this World Communion Sunday, remember what the people of ancient Israel and 1 Samuel 8 forgot. Remember, no national flag no human crown, no political party symbol like an elephant or donkey, no sports team or logo, no school or symbol for that school. Nothing can truly speak to the depths of the bonds you can know with others the way that God's rule can and look to the symbols of our faith to remember how you are not alone but bound together with others. Look to world communion, the earth and the chalice and bread in front of it. Look to the cross that reminds us and believers all over the world of the one who died and rose again for us, who gave his life a sacrifice for many. Look to the baptismal font where we celebrated just last Sunday how Calvin Corumpus was welcomed into the family of faith and how we were bound with him and he with us through baptism, a body that has known that cleansing and forgiving love of God in Christ. Look to the communion table behind me where we recall that we are made one. We sit at one table together with each other and those around the world where all are welcomed and can know the grace of a community of forgiveness bound together with Christ at its head. This World Communion Sunday, remember, you are a citizen not just of an earthly kingdom or a nation. You are citizens of God's kingdom, the very kingdom Jesus, your Savior and Lord, brought near to you. Remember, in these pandemic days especially, Ain't no one here, ain't no one in this room, ain't no one watching the live stream, ain't no one who's participating in worship this World Communion Sunday who is alone. We are bound together in Christ. And if we are sad, we are not sad alone. And when we celebrate that new kingdom, that new earth breaking in and see signs of it, we celebrate it together. We're bound together, friends, a joyful community in faith. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost.